Good morning, High Point. That was great, wasn't it? <laughs> um, today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 32. Um, this is found on page 1568 in your pew Bible. Um, and you'll want to keep this open the entire sermon. We're going to be reading all of chapter 5. Nick's going to be walking all through chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. So keep that open. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew that what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. <clears throat> so there are some people among us who are excited that baseball season has begun again after a long two months of waiting. <laughs> I'll confess to you that I don't follow baseball very closely. We're already 20 games into the season, and uh, I really don't have any idea what the standing of the Milwaukee Cardinals is. <laughs> but though I, don't <clears throat> though I don't watch baseball, I do remember playing it. This was back in an era where children played outside because their parents intentionally sent their children away from supervision to play and learn in the protective company of these things called friends. <clears throat> in some of these experiences, I learned how I do not like to play baseball. Number one, first, I do not like to play baseball without a backstop. Baseball is already a little bit of a slow game. And if you've ever tried playing with kids without a backstop, watching clouds form can be added as a fast-moving entertainment to pass the time. <clears throat> 
like a backboard in basketball. It kind of seems like you could play without it, but you really shouldn't try. Um, beliefs are like this. Our beliefs are what make the rest of us, the rest of our lives kind of feel safe and secure. And if you back, go back down through all the things that you believe, from the stuff that's really conscious in your mind to the stuff that makes everything else make sense inside of you, there are some beliefs that are like your backstop beliefs. They don't, you don't think about them explicitly every second. But if somebody asks you 37 times why you said something, or why you did something, or why you think something, and you had to keep backing down why you believe this, and then why you believe what was behind it, at some point you would get back to a reason that you couldn't go any further back, and it was like the big reason that give, makes sense of everything else. It's the thing that stops the ball of crazy flying when it's flying backwards in your mind. <clears throat> the second thing, way I do not like playing baseball, and I think all sensible people would agree, is I do not like being at the mercy of some kid picking teams. Kids don't pick teams well. They tend to just pick the good players, and oftentimes they just pick their friends, and it makes for games that aren't much fun. And instead, coaches tend to pick teams for role players and for attitude, right? Like, teams have a way they do things, and you need players that are going to understand what the identity of the team is, and how you're going to play the game together. And then you need people who can play all the different roles. Like, I, I've, I've watched kids pick teams for baseball without thinking about the fact that when we get on the field, somebody's going to have to pitch. Right? <clears throat> I remember as a kid, like, there'd be like three pitchers, and one team gets all three of them. And you're like, what just happened? You know? <clears throat> In, um, in Luke chapter 5, in the first half of chapter 6, um, essentially, and I'm not saying Jesus was prophesying the game of baseball because I wouldn't want to give it that kind of divine sanction, but what Jesus is doing is he's kind of laying down the identity, like the backstop, the, like what he will not let pass and what his identity and his mission is. And then he picks his team. So chapter 5 starts with Jesus calling Peter to follow him. In chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus comes down off the mountain after a night of prayer, and he gathers all his disciples with him, and he designates the 12 apostles. Okay, so th that's why I'm preaching this passage. That's why it's a unit. And in this unit, Luke is trying to help us see what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And that if you're going to be his disciple, if you're going to be on his team, you have to understand that there are certain backstops, there are certain things that, like, you don't get to pass on that are fundamental to Jesus' identity and his mission. And those he presents. And then those who are still with him after he presents all of that, that's from whom he picks his team. Well, that is his team, and out of those, he picks the leaders of that team. Does that make sense? So— <clears throat> Oh man, I had cute slides to go with all that stuff. Sorry. So, so that's baseball. That's kids picking teams. That's picking teams. Sorry. That's teams that aren't fair. <laughs> that's good, right? That's, yeah. <clears throat> so, so Jesus' identity and mission is what he's laying out. And his identity in the book of Luke 
because his identity in real life is that he is the Son of God and he has come to gather those who are willing to be healed. We talked at Easter about how justification or the forgiveness of sins to right standing with God is not the end for which Jesus has come. He, he's come to set us free and to heal us. That is his end game. That requires divine forgiveness. It's impossible for him to heal us from the curse that we are judicially under without providing a pardon for us. It's, in part, it's impossible for him to heal us, right, from our sickness if we will not become compliant to how he saves, which requires him doing something inside of our mentality and our psychology and our beliefs about ourselves. He has to do something to us, and one of the things that destroys us is the fact that we know we're guilty. And so his offering of forgiveness— as in, I mean, you can see, right, this, it makes sense that Luke presents this this way. Luke is referred to as the good doctor. You can see that he would see the, the, the ministry and mission and identity of Jesus is that the Son of God has come to heal. <clears throat> of course a doctor would write it that way, right? But it's a good way for us to see it. It's an angle that Matthew, Mark, and John don't focus on quite as much, but it's just as true. Jesus has come to heal as the Son of God. Now, Jesus isn't called the Son of God in this passage. He's called the Son of God at the beginning of his ministry in Luke 3 and 4, right? God says, you are my son. With you I'm well pleased. And then when he goes into his temptation, the first thing that the Satan, the tempter, says to him is, if you're the Son of God, let's test that, right? Do this or do that. And so now Jesus is going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. One of the reasons why he calls himself the Son of Man and this often confuses people who are predisposed not to believe in Christian faith. So if you talk to the average atheist who hasn't read the Bible carefully, right, because that's not their main text, right? Or if you talk to oftentimes if you talk to Muslims, right, those two groups especially will say, you know, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man a lot, and he doesn't refer to himself as the Son of God very much. Isn't it very possible that Jesus' self-understanding was that he was like a divinely inspired human— but not the Son of God in some very special and particular way? No is the answer to that question. And you would know that if you read the Bible carefully, and it's one of the things I'm going to try to show over the course of this sermon, that Luke sets it up by calling Jesus the Son of God by a divine affirmation from the Father. God the Father says, you are my Son. Right? And then Satan says, if you're the Son of God, and then he tests that, so that we should know by the end of Jesus' temptation that he is the Son of God. Now the question is, what does it mean that he's the Son of God? And we're going to find that what it means is, is that he can do all the things God does, and that you as a man cannot. He is fundamentally and categorically singularly different from all other human beings. So then why would he refer himself as the Son of Man? Well, you'll find that when he starts to show who he really is, he starts getting accused of blasphemy. And there is a very helpful, ambiguous biblical title that both is a claim to divinity and <clears throat> a veiled claim to divinity, which is the Son of Man. Because Son of Man can mean human being, like it means in Ezekiel, or it can mean the Son of Man from the prophetic vision in the book of Daniel, who is the Messiah, King, God, who rules over all things. Which does he mean? And it becomes obvious over the course of the Gospels that he means the latter. That he is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of Man, from the prophecies of Daniel, 
who is ruler over all the kingdoms of the world. So, how does that work out? So, there's, there's like eight episodes here, okay? So I'm going to have to move kind of quickly. So in the first episode, Jesus is teaching. There's a huge crowd. They're kind of pushing in on him. So he gets in a boat a little bit away from shore, and it turns out it's Peter's boat. So at the end of his sermon, and everybody's clearing out, he's like, Peter, why don't you just—thanks for using your boat. Why don't you go out a little bit from shore and, and throw the nets down? Now, listen. Th- now, this has nothing to do with Christianity, but this is free advice, okay? If you're not a fisherman, don't tell fishermen how to fish. Okay? Just don't do that. Fishing is more complicated than you think it is if you're not a fisherman, okay? I just, um, I've had a lifelong dream of being a fishing guide. And I found out last month that in the state of Wisconsin, it costs 40 bucks and you just fill out a form and you could be a fishing guide. (laughs) So I'm a fishing guide in the state of Wisconsin. It's the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. It's a lifelong dream. I have, I've had zero clients, but I'm hopeful. Okay, so anyway, you don't tell fishermen how to fish. And so, so, so Peter's really kind with Jesus. He's like, Jesus, Jesus, man, we fished all night and we fish with nets, right? So like when you fish with nets, fish can see nets, it turns out. And so like you want to fish at night so they can't see it. Like there's just zero chance we're going to catch anything today when we didn't catch anything all night, right? He's like, just Give it a try. Because like by now it's like midday. It's like maximum in-water sight for fish. So they go out and they throw their nets down and it's like, it's like a pot, like there's so many fish. Their buddy comes out, they fill both boats and the boats start sinking. Okay, that's probably a couple thousand tilapia. Okay, that's probably what that is. Okay, and so Peter's response to this is in chapter five, he says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. So all the fishermen knew what this meant. This was not a like, hey, we happened into a school. They were like, this is weird. This is like, the fishermen knew this was a miracle. Okay. Whatever, everybody else was like, can I get one of those? And then it says, then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Apparently there were still enough people to like get the fish, because otherwise that would really smell if they just left two boats full of fish, you know. Here's the point. What's Jesus' identity? In order to thank somebody for borrowing their boat for a couple of hours— Jesus controls the psychology of thousands of fish to make a point. Okay? So listen, if I could do that— I mean, like, if there was a level of Christian spiritual awakening by which I could control the psychology of thousands of fish, listen, listen, I would go to the Himalayas if necessary. Like, there is no end to the spiritual pursuit. It just shows how spiritually shallow I am, right? But, like, I would want that. Like, if that was just—right? Um— and for Jesus, it's just like a thing. Like, he's just kind of making a silly point. And Peter, like, understands what this means. It means that he's in the presence of God. That's what it means. That's when people get terrified, okay? People don't get terrified when they're in the presence of Elijah or Moses, right? People talk bad to Moses, and God had to, like, strike them with leprosy and stuff because people—he was just a guy—he was just a man, even though God was speaking through him. But, but this is different. Like, 
Peter realized that something extraordinarily profound just happened, and he could just control nature. And so he, re- and he, he recognized the meaning of that was that he was in the presence of God because he was terrified. And he said, please leave my presence because I can't be in your presence. Right? Which means, one, it was coming home to Peter who he was in the presence of, and he felt as though he was in the presence of God. Because he, he was. And so are you whenever you are in the presence of Jesus, even if only mentally. Right? But secondly, Jesus clarifies that the normal conclusion is not his conclusion. The normal conclusion of being in the presence of God for a sinful man is that there must be a separation. And Jesus says that the result is going to be just the opposite. No, no, I'm here to get you to come with me. I didn't come to send you away. I came to bring you along. And you need to understand that that is the mission of the Son of God. The mission of the Son of God, no matter what you are sinfully, which is you are considerably sinful is the answer to that question. A little bit relative from person to person, but not much, okay? And so if you were in the presence of Jesus, and you knew you were in the presence of God, the right emotional response would be, go away from me. I'm a sinful person. And Jesus' response is, I didn't come to send you away. I came to bring you along. Right? That's his mission. That's what he's doing, okay? The second one is, in the next passage, Jesus is walking along, and he runs into a man who the Bible says is covered with leprosy, or a profoundly nasty skin disease. Right? And the man says to Jesus, he calls out to him, he says, Lord, because he realizes there's something special about him. He's heard about the healings. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Because these kinds of diseases in the Old Testament were categorized as uncleanness, not just disease. Because they tended to spread by touch, or, and they spread through certain kind of sanitary conditions, and everybody recognized that. And so there was this— the, the disease was a disease, but it was also a kind of uncleanness, because it was a sort of filth that tended to spread right? Even though it was also a great misfortune. So people had to live outside of civilized society if they had these kinds of diseases, because they couldn't be healed. And so nobody could touch them. And it says that Jesus reached out, and he touched the man, and he said, I am willing, be clean. Whoops, I did something wrong. So I pushed the wrong button, sorry. So here's the point. Now some people have said, The fact that Jesus reached out his hand and touched this man shows Jesus' compassion. Because somebody like this, he's never had been touched in years. And until you haven't been touched in years, you don't know what it's like to to not be touched by another human being for years. It's horrible. Humans are supposed to be touched by other humans. It doesn't mean you just touch each other. But but you're within this parameters of social whatevers, like— You're supposed to be touched by other people. And if you have leprosy, you can't be touched by other people, right? And they're like, this shows how compassionate Jesus was. He was so compassionate. Now, that's sort of true. I do not think that's the theological point. That's not Luke's point. Luke's point is this. If any man touches uncleanness, the Bible says what happens to them is they become unclean. 
all the way through till Haggai, right? Even, in, even God says through the prophet Haggai, listen, if you have something that's unclean and you have something that's from the holy place that's holy and they come in contact with each other, what happens? And the answer is in the Bible, the holy thing becomes unclean. The unclean thing doesn't become holy. Filth spreads. Disease spreads. Immorality spreads. The diseases and curses of human beings spread. It takes an extraordinary divine power to reverse these realities in nature. And so Jesus reaches out and touches the unclean thing as the Son of God and shows he is the one thing that can make the unclean clean. Because he's the Son of God. Right? Now, one of the things that's important about reading the first five books of the New Testament, the first five books of the New Testament are all narrative. They're not like straight teaching. They're, they're teaching in the form of narratives and stories, right? And they're true stories, but that's a different way of learning. And those five books are different than almost every other set of books in the Bible because they don't explicitly always tell you exactly what they're teaching, but you have to figure it out, right? And so do you just believe whatever comes into your mind? And the answer is no. That's, that's not what you do. Usually what you do is you read the, the stories on each side of it. And, and if you read two or three on this side and two or three on that side, you get the theme that's being taught because none of, the, none of those five books, except for maybe Acts, are intentionally chronological. They seem chronological because they'll start with the infancy of Jesus and end with the resurrection of Jesus. So you'll think like, oh, it's chronological, but it's not. It's an orderly account. And the orderliness of it is designed to instruct us that Jesus is the Son of God and what that means. That's how it's all ordered that way and why it's all ordered that way. John explicitly says in John's Gospel, he says, listen, if I put all the stuff Jesus did in this book, it would be so many books it would fill the whole world, which means he's been editing for like 50 years. Like he's, he's been shrinking it down and picking only very specific things and weaving them together so that when you were done, you would believe, you would like, you would understand who Jesus is. So why is this here? Right, and the answer is, because Jesus has come to cleanse. He's come to show that divine willingness is not the obstacle to your true cleansing, your true healing. So you see, some people believe, they'll say, look, Nick, I'm not an atheist, because like who, you can't verify atheism, right? Like, so, like, I'm not, I'm not gonna like fight for atheism, but like, or irreligion or whatever, but like, I just don't, I even believe, some people will even say, I even believe there's a God out there, right? But I just don't know if God, if that God that's out there cares about, like, what I'm trying to do, or my problems, or what's wrong with me, or is interested in whether or not I come to salvation. It looks like a pretty disposable world out there if you look at nature. And so I don't know why I would believe that God is willing, even if God is there, that God is willing to restore me in some kind of way, to some idea of what I might be, right? And you see, those verses are there to say— that if you don't accept Jesus as the speaking and showing of God, as the Son of God, well, then you'll be confused about that. And that would be, I think, the logical conclusion. But if you recognize that God has intentionally come into time and space to speak and show the truth about himself, and he has interacted in this way and caused it to be recorded specifically so that you would know 
that the, a lack of willingness in God is not an obstacle to your true healing. Whatever the true healing you need is, which starts with forgiveness and ends with something else, a number of other things, God's willingness to love you, God's willingness to heal you, God's willingness to forgive you, God's willingness to cleanse you is not the problem. Okay? But the, the question then becomes, like, what is the cleansing then, right? And that's the very next passage. In the very next passage, now Jesus has done a lot of healings by this point, and word has kind of gotten out that he's also teaching. And so now, <clears throat> now the tenure police show up, okay? It says in the beginning of the next passage that at this point, the religious teachers from everywhere have come. So if you look at verse 17 in chapter 5, one day Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. So that's like basically all of Israel. So all these religious teachers, they is not the people in this context. They is all the religious teachers. So from the capital of the country, they've gone out to podunk, middle of nowhere Galilee. Because this guy, we need to find out what this guy's teaching. It's important. What it means is Jesus teaching who he is, what he says his mission is, what he says his identity is, is going to be evaluated now by man, by people they think, who think that they know God. And so what happens is um, there's these people who have a paralyzed friend and they can't get to him, and so they cut a hole in the ceiling and they drop him right down in front of Jesus. And everybody's like, oh man, I wonder if Jesus is going to heal this guy. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Right? And people are like, that's, like, that's it. Okay, to, to stay with the baseball metaphor, that is an intentional curveball. Okay, that is like intentionally throwing the off-speed pitch. Like, we've got you going this way, now I'm going to go this way. And people are like, Andy's going to heal. He didn't heal him. He said, what? He said, your sins are forgiven, right? And now, listen, this is very important. Whenever somebody tells you that Jesus did not think he was the Son of God, Right? Or that the Bible doesn't even claim that. Just take them through all the passages where Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Okay? Because every time Jesus is accused of blasphemy, he's always being accused of blasphemy because of what he's saying he can do. Right? And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And all these religious teachers say, that's blasphemy! You can't say that because only God can forgive sins. And he's like, okay, that's sort of my point. You guys are a little slow. And so he says, listen. He says, it's e I realize it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because you can't ever know empirically if that's true, right? Like there's a scientific problem with the forgiveness of sins, right? Because you can't, you can't like get the sins and like apply the experiment of forgiveness and then at the end, like, verify that they're dissolved. And so anybody can say that stuff. That's the problem with, like, virtually all religious teaching is that you're saying things that are or are not true about ab abstract objects that nobody can scientifically verify, but that have to exist, or, like, you believe they exist, or it's relevant that they exist. Things like whether or not—like, for example, it's not a scientific truth whether or not it's right to torture a baby. Okay? There's no way to scientifically prove that it's wrong to torture a baby, okay? But most people do not want to proceed in life ambiguous on whether or not that's right or wrong, right? There are abstract objects that you can't scientifically verify or empirically test 
that are fundamental to all of human existence. And Jesus recognizes this. Like he steps up and he's like, look, like I get that when I say your sins are forgiven, that it's reasonable for you to say, how can you say that? Or is it true? And the religious leaders are like, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. And a normal person would say, how can I really know that's true? Like, I can't verify that my sins are dissolved. Right? And so Jesus says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he heals the guy. Now that's it's relevant for two reasons. One is, Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you I can do something that you can't do. To show you I can do something even greater that you can't do. Because I realize that's difficult to believe. It's one of the reasons why Jesus did the miracles that he did, and it's one of the main reasons why the resurrection happened. It's impossible to keep God dead. There's some things like that too. But one, the Bible says that when Jesus was raised from the dead— it demonstrated that God had accepted his sacrifice for sin on the cross on your behalf. When God vindicated his son, right, he was demonstrating that the sacrifice for your sins was valid and acceptable. You see, because, because you can't empirically verify the dissolution of your sins, you can only know that your sins are forgiven on the basis of authority. Right? That's, it's a basic epistemological fact. There's no other way to know it. How could you possibly know it? If you can't touch, taste, feel, and feel the thing, but you have to know something about it, the only way you could know is if somebody with the authority to say it told you it was the fact, and they were utterly trustworthy in what they said they were. And so that's what Jesus is trying to do for you. He's trying to say, look, I have the authority to say your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then he did the most empirical thing that could possibly be done in the moment, and he took a man that nobody could heal, and he healed him. And then he gave a gift to all parents throughout all generations, and he told the guy to pick up after himself before he left. <laughs> because he's God, and he gives good gifts to everyone, like parents, right? See, the point, the point is, what cleansing, right? He cleanses the leper. What cleansing? What cleansing are you really talking about? And Jesus is saying, the cleansing that I'm talking about is first and foremost the cleansing of your guilt and your soul. Because everybody believes the fundamental question, the backstop belief for every person is, am I worthwhile? That's everybody's backstop question. I don't care who you are, what culture you're from, what language you speak, what your daddy did to you. None of that is relevant to this fundamental fact. The most fundamental question in you is, am I worthwhile? Because it has three questions in it. One, am I worth anything? Two, am I good enough to exist without feeling like I morally shouldn't exist? And is my time worth anything? Like, am I here for anything? All of those questions are bound up in that. And forgiveness answers all three of them, right? Anything that is redeemed has value by definition, right? We fix things that matter to us. We restore things that matter to us. The fact that God chose to save demonstrates he still values the divine image, marred and cursed as it is in every human being, and he finds them worth saving. You have worth. Right, but am I—but am I too wicked 
to be redeemed? And the answer is, no, the death of the Son of God can take your profound wickedness incredibly seriously and still objectively by divine authority forgive you entirely so that you are justified. And Romans 8 says, to those God is justified who can condemn. God's the judge. If God pronounces you innocent, who gets to accuse you? And the answer is no one, not even who? Yourself. Not even yourself. You have no authority to morally condemn the one that God has morally justified at the cost of the death of the Son. But, but you're like, well, but Nick, it's going to be a stretch now on the like, worthwhile, like that I have a purpose. It's not really. Because why do we engage in forgiveness? Why does anybody ever engage in forgiveness? It's because they want the relationship back. There, we start relationships for reasons, right? We enter into friendships because we sh want to share something with that person. We enter into romantic relationships because we want to love and be loved and like walk with somebody through the world. We want to experience that complementary relationship that you can only have between a man and a woman and you can't have with your guy buddies or your girlfriends. Like we, we enter into all, we enter into work relationships because we want to produce something together. We enter into research relationships because we want to figure something out. We enter into relationships for purposes, for meaning, right? And the reason why we would, God would go out of his way to restore all things relationally through forgiveness is because every relationship matters. And because those relationships have purpose. Because the people in them have purpose. And you see, if that is your backstop question, then the forgiveness of sins is the first step of your true healing. God wants to make us clean in our healing. And the first, the first thing—see, because there's a lot of healing that it is, it is the unsanitariness of us that makes us sick, right? That's why uncleanness and disease and sin can go together, right? God, what God is doing is he's taking sin and the guilt of it and disease, and he is merging those two categories with the concept of cleanliness and uncleanliness in the Bible. And he's saying, that's what we need, right? So I'm going to have to move a little faster in some of these. So the question then is, for whom? For whom? So if, if Jesus has come to make us clean, and he can clean the sickest leper, right? But leprosy is not a moral thing. It's not like the guy had syphilis. You know what I'm saying? Like the— like, Skin uncleanliness, those kinds of disorders or disabilities, they come on people usually without reference to their moral actions. And so it's a reasonable question to say, okay, forgiveness is the cleansing you're talking about. Who's that for? Is it for people who help themselves as well as they can and you cover the balance? Who's it for, right? And so the very next thing that happens is Jesus walks out, because Capernaum was on the trade route from like Syria, Syrian areas and stuff like that, down through into the, the basin of the Mediterranean. So even though Capernaum was a relatively remote location, right, it was close to the Sea of Galilee. It had a natural water source. It was one of the bigger towns of the towns of that region. Like it's, you know, there are smaller towns in like Richland Center, you know, around Richland Center. And so Richland Center doesn't seem big, but it's got a Walmart and a Culver's, right? And so like it's, you know, if you're going through Wisconsin, 
that way you might stop in Rizzo Center, even though it's not a big town. And so this guy Levi, he had, he had bid for and purchased the Roman taxation rights for that area. So everybody coming out of that town, he got to tax them. And I mean, you think about who hating somebody. Like, that, I mean, that would be basically like in American history, in like 1830, Jesus going to like the biggest, most brutal plantation owner, right? And he has like a bunch of black disciples, and he, he like walks up to that guy, right? All the Pharisees in this metaphor would have to be like, like black people, all right? They really, really hate this guy. And he goes, hey, like Colonel Sanders, like come follow me with all my other disciples. Come and follow me and be part of our family that we're all going to have together. And Colonel Sanders is like, yes. Maybe he walks away from all of that, and he walks into follow Jesus wherever he's going to be taken to be brother and sister with all these other people Jesus has already gathered. Okay? It's a little awkward. Okay? It's a little awkward. But, I mean, listen. You might think, Nick, that's an exaggeration. Like, the level of hatred. No, it is not an exaggeration. The, you have no idea the level of hatred Jewish people had for tax collectors. The, I mean, the, the complicity with the Roman overlords against the will of God. Like, it, I mean, it's horrifying how people hated them so much. They believed the Romans had made them slaves and that it would be like in the 1830s an African-American working for the master, doing his whipping. That's what a tax collector would be in that context. Howard Thurman's work on that, this actually is really, really good. Because when he writes on the disinherited, like in the church in America, writing about the black experience, he connects that with Jesus' relationship to tax collectors and the disinherited Jews and the relationship of love Jesus meant to create between them. This is very profound stuff. And anyway. The point here is this cleansing from the horrific leprosy of sin that is based in forgiveness of sins, which the Son of Man has authority on earth to give, is for the worst people and everyone else. Okay, it's for the worst. Right? And, he, and here's one of the ways this demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. He does not need your respectability and he is not afraid of your cultural fears. Okay? He doesn't need—like, he doesn't, all, the, all the sentiments of respectability, he doesn't need them. He doesn't need to be respected. He doesn't care what you think about him. Well, he at least doesn't change what he does on the basis of how you think about him. He's going to do what he's going to do, and that's it. And he doesn't care how he's, how he's treated. He, he, know, he knows people are going to kill him. He is so focused on the truth in a way that is— not normally human, right? And he, he takes the divine authority to invite the person who everybody would think is under divine damnation, and he invites him to follow him because he is gathering people, all who are willing for healing, right? Okay, so in the next episode, he says— so, so this guy Levi, right, he has this huge party. And he, of course, Levi can only invite to his party people who are on speaking terms with him, which is like no respectable Jews, right? So all the people who he, like, talks to are like basically other tax collectors and other people that other people basically hate or who are willing to put aside 
their scruples in order to be connected with him because there's money involved or something like that, right? And so those are the people he invites to his house. And Jesus goes to the party. Like, in the, pro the problem with this is, is that in every culture, there are activities in which if you engage in those activities, everybody says, well, if you do that with them, it assumes that you approve of them, right? So we have a lot of this in America right now, like in the media and stuff. Like, it, you know, ways people—like if you take a picture with somebody, like if you take a selfie with them, it means you approve of them, right? Or if you don't properly say that you hate them publicly, then you approve of them, right? Which is crazy. But— you know, we all have to morally posture, right? But in this case, there's this party, and it, tur it turns out some of the, enough of the religious teachers turn up at this thing to confront Jesus because they're already pretty unhappy with what he said about sins, right? And then he goes out, and he invites this guy Levi to follow him, which is like really stupid, even though it's pretty—the name is ironic, right? Levi, short for the Levites, who are the priests. This guy's basically the opposite, right? And he's calling him back into this priesthood of all believers. It's very interesting. No time for that right now. Okay. So they say to him, they're like, listen. Okay, so you not only spoke blasphemy out forgiveness of sins, and then you went out and invited this guy to be it, and then now you're at his party, which means you basically approve of him. In addition to this, like, I've been watching your disciples, and they're like— eating food and drinking wine and like, and it's, it's, it's like, it's like they think nothing serious is happening. Don't you get it? Like, God is serious. Like, we're under the oppression of the Romans. People aren't religious enough. There's a lot of immorality around. People are teaching false doctrines. There's a lot of problems. We got a lot of problems. And here you are just like, hey, the, can I have another glass of wine? This is not okay. Like, we should be showing the problems of our culture and the problems around us by, like, fasting and, like, being sad about it and stuff, right? That'll be, that'll be attractive to people. And Jesus is like, okay, like, I get that. That's actually, that actually, in principle, that's not wrong. It's not wrong for you to recognize that when things are bad— people should mourn. That our emotional expression should go along with what is really happening, and you should have a clarity about what's really happening, and those should be connected. But here's the problem. You don't know where you are. That's the problem. You don't know who you're talking to. You don't know where—you don't know what's happening. Right? He says, listen, if you—if you go to a wedding, and your father has just died, okay, how do you behave? Now, he doesn't say it with that other addition, but look, if, if you're going to go to a wedding, even if a, a close relative has just died, but you go to the wedding, what do you have to do? You put on your dress, you put on your suit or whatever, you put on your happy face. If you're a woman, you may put on some concealer, you know, like, and you go to the wedding and you say, I'm so happy for you. This is so great. You guys are going to be happy forever and never argue. And you're going to eat the food and you're going to drink the wine and you're going to get up and dance because dang it, you're at a wedding and a wedding is a happy occasion. You can go mourn later. You can leave, get back in your car and start sobbing. And you can mourn when you get home, but when you're at a wedding, it is inappropriate for the groom to come by your table with your food still on your plate, untouched, everybody else celebrating. And he says, is there something wrong with the food? And you say, well, I'm mourning right now. <laughs> no, you're not. You're at a wedding, right? And what does this mean? It means that Jesus is the Son of God. Because the Pharisees are right. 
they're living under the curse. They're right. They're right at every other moment but this moment. The moment where Jesus is there. Because he is the groom of the salvation of the entire bride of creation. And wherever he is, is a wedding. Wherever he is, is a celebration. Wherever he is, is the greatest moment that has ever existed. And you just can't mourn. He's like, listen, there's going to be a time when my disciples will be without me. They will be without the Son of Man. And then they'll mourn, and they'll fast, and they'll be sad because that will be the appropriate emotion. But that is not the appropriate emotion when I'm here. What does that mean? It means he's the Son of God. It means he's the Son of Man that comes on the clouds. It means that all of creation is nothing but a wedding to his presence, and he is its great groom. And if you get that, it tends to make you happy about it. And it's inappropriate not to be happy. And so Jesus rejects moralism with the true joy of his identity and his mission and who he is. And he, he wants that to be their backstop. And if it's not their backstop, he's not on—they're not on his team, right? All right. Six. So then there's these last two episodes where Jesus— it's, so the Sabbath day—see, we don't get this because we don't do Sabbath at all because we're really foolish, okay? So because of how we use our leisure and because we don't really work very hard, especially physically, most people who are like white-collar or who don't work, um, they're not—they don't understand what it means to work like a 12 to 14-hour day in the sun six days a week. And that there's an oppressiveness to that under the curse in a world of thorns and thistles. And that God in his graciousness gave a day of rest and demanded that no one make anybody else work on that day. Right? And as you go through the Bible, God changes certain things at certain times for his people. But the one thing that stays true all the way across and that he demands of anybody else who becomes one of his people is the Sabbath. For example, in Isaiah 55, I think it is, he says, For all foreigners— who fear my name and keep my Sabbaths, I will give. And he describes salvation for them. So this, the Sabbath is wh what makes the Jews Jews and what makes the people of God the people of God. It is their fundamental institution. It is the institution that happens every week. It is the one that they all touch, that they're all part of, that they're all under. It is the most sacred thing that they have. And because of that, they have created a lot of rules to protect it. Right? And so Jesus is walking along, and they're walking past a grain field, and they reach out, and they take some of the heads of grain, and they go like this to get the kernels out, and they're chewing on the kernels. Okay? And some of the teachers of the law, because apparently they're like watching Jesus with binoculars now, because he's apparently way off the map. <clears throat> they're like, hey! Hey! That's threshing! You can't do that. Now, if they'd paid attention to the Bible, they would know that that's not threshing. Because the Bible explicitly says in Sabbath years, you can't thresh, but you can eat all the food that's in the fields. Threshing means to cut what belongs to you and put it in your barn so nobody else has access to it. That's what threshing means in the Old Testament. If you read it carefully, all the places it's referred to. I didn't know that till this year when I studied the festivals closely. But they had made rules because, listen, you're not supposed to work. So let's make rules that like anything that you might do counts as work. And Jesus is like, okay, do you not understand— that in the Bible, there was this time where David 
was running from Saul, and he ran into one of the priests, right? And he didn't have any food, right? And so there was this priest named Ahimelech, and he was the priest of God. And David was like, look, I don't have any food. I'm on the king's errand. Can you give me five loaves of bread? And Ahimelech was in this bind because he didn't have any bread already made, except there was bread that was a formal holy offering to God called the bread of the presence, which he was to make every day and put in before the Lord as an offering. Now that day he had already, he had already taken away the old bread for the day and set it aside before the offering of the next day. So the bread of the presence had already fulfilled its purpose and now it was out, but it was still holy, right? And so he's like, okay, I've got this bread. It's holy. They're not supposed to have it according to the sacrificial laws that are in the Bible itself. It's out of the presence of God now, and I'm just going to throw it away. God's servant is here and really needs it. He's God's anointed. Should I give it to him? Right? And so Ahimelech says, okay— have, have you been, like, whoring before you got here? Like, are, like are, are you guys following God at least? And that you asking this is in good faith? And he's like, oh, he's like, David's like, oh yeah, I don't let my guys run around. It actually says their things are pure in the text of the Bible, right? And so Ahimelech goes, okay, well then I guess I should give you the bread. And he gives them the bread, right? And you see, that's a very interesting situation because technically Ahimelech is breaking the rule right? But he also understands the purpose of the bread of the presence. He understands that this, these loaves have fulfilled their purpose. They're, he's not taking them from the presence of God to give to David. They're already—he's just going to throw them away. Yes, they're holy things, but these people in faith have tried to keep themselves holy, and wouldn't—and this is God's servant. Maybe I should—and and Jesus goes, see, that is what it means to care about the rules. That is what it means to care about a divine institution. To know exactly when you should do the right things and under what principles you should do other things because you know what the thing is for. He's like, don't you get it? You guys, the Sabbath is for rest and healing. It's to eat. You're supposed to eat. Like, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be restful. I'm not supposed to have to argue with you on the Sabbath. You're religious teachers, and you're arguing with me on the Sabbath. That's your job to argue. Like, you're breaking the Sabbath. He doesn't actually say that. I would probably say that. But I'm not the Son of God, and Jesus has more tact than I do. And so, but, but here's what Jesus says that really makes him mad. He tells him that story, and he basically says, don't you get it? And then he says this, but the Son of Man is the Lord, that is the King or the Master of the Sabbath. Think about that. What, what kind of person can declare that they are the ruler of a divine institution? Who gets to say that? If, we, if that was the only paragraph we had out of the Bible, if all the rest of it got burned and you were in a jail cell somewhere, and that was the only tatter of paper that you had to show to other cellmates, you could demonstrate conclusively from the Word of God that Jesus believed he was the Son of God incarnate. Only God is master of the fundamental divine institution of his people. Only God. And therefore— he can tell you when you're screwing with its purpose. Which is why in the very next verses, he, he, he goes to the synagogue and there's this guy and his, his hand is contorted and shriveled up and, and he's sitting in the thing and like the guys, all the teachers of the law, they're like, I wonder if he's going to heal this guy. 
because you're not allowed to heal on the Sabbath, according to the rabbis, unless you're literally saving somebody's life. Otherwise, you gotta wait till the next day because it's work, right? And Jesus says, listen, you tell me if it's lawful on the Sabbath to save life or destroy it, to do good or to do evil. Right? And then he has a guy stand up. He says, stretch out your hand. And he stretches out his hand. He's perfectly healed. And the people, and these teachers are furious with him, right? And you see, the problem is this. The institution of the Sabbath is an institution for healing. That's what it is. The degradation of six days of 12-hour manual labor that crushes the body, right? And like you're tired and you've been in the sun and you like haven't gotten a moment to think and you haven't been able to focus on God because you're exhausted and you really don't know what's going to happen next week yet or if the crops are going to come in. But there is one day where it stops so that you can be healed, so that you can rest. It doesn't even—I mean, the Sabbath in the Bible, if you study closely, the focus is not on worship. There is worship, but that isn't the focus. The focus is rest. You get to heal, right? And yet the laws the men had written about this said, but you can't heal on the Sabbath. <laughs> you get it? Like, we make—we make, when we don't get Jesus' identity and his mission— we make fake backstops that are in front of the batter's box so you can't even play the game. That's what legalism is like. Legalism is like putting a backstop two feet in front of the pitcher's mound and thinking you can play. It's crazy, but yet you need a backstop. And it takes wisdom. It takes knowing the purpose of things to know how that all rolls. And Jesus is saying, I know how it should go because he's the Son of God, right? And then Worship team, you guys can come up. I'm going to be done by the time you get up here. Um, and then he goes up on the mountain and prays all night. And then he comes down and he picks his team. Because if you were with him through healing, the leper, the fishing boat, right? Saying a guy whose sins were forgiven. The controversies with the Sabbath. If you were with him through all that and you were still with him, then you get it on some level. You get it on some level. You know what this team is about. You know the identity, and you know the mission. You get it. And so he takes those people, and out of them he chooses 12 to send. Right? And you see, that's really all you have to get. That's all you have to get. That, this, that Jesus is the Son of God, and he is here to heal. All who are willing. So the question is always, is, as always is, do you believe he's the Son of God? Are you willing? Are you willing or, or do you have laws you've made up about things? Do you have reasons not to? Let's pray. God, as we sing this last song, we pray that you'd help us to open our hearts. Well, we, many of the things we think are reasons we know are pride. Um, just like these very devout religious men, they had these reasons that they developed, and yet Jesus says that they're pride, that they have, they have missed the point. They've missed the idea. They don't know what God is really doing. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us in the places where our reasons are reasons. We pray you'd help us find answers. But we know that we're human beings and that we're instinctually self-protecting and instinctually insecure, and we create reasons to make us safe from you. We want our, our fundamental reaction is, go away from me, Lord. And so, God, we, we pray that you would help us to have the opposite attitude right now. Holy Spirit, convict and change us in it. Help us to sing what we sing with a purity of heart and openness of truth. And we pray that you'd help us to turn to you and know 
that there is never a lack of willingness on your part. You said, I am willing, be clean.